If you have your Bibles, you can um, take them out and turn with me to Genesis, the 28th chapter. <clears throat> um, it's so good to, um, to see you this morning as we continue in the storyline of the Bible. And so we're, we're cranking through Genesis. We got one more sermon in the book of Genesis, and then we will um, cross over and be into the book of Exodus. And this morning we have basically the life of Jacob part two. Um, and it was brought to my attention by my lovely wife after last Sunday's sermon that possibly, just possibly, if you have the name Jacob or if you named your child um, Jacob, that I could have been offensive. <laughs> but let me be very clear. I didn't say that you named your son cheat or deceiver. The Bible did. <laughs> that wasn't me. Don't be mad at me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you named your child Jacob, that's a, that's a strong biblical name. It just may not be all that godly. But I'm just saying, <laughs> just saying, it's a good name. It's a biblical name. All right, Genesis chapter 28. We're going to look at Jacob's dream. We'll start in verse number 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar. He poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray. Father, as we have already said from this stage, as we've already prayed, thank you. Thank you for your revelation. Thank you, Lord, that, you're, that you come to us in your mercy and in, and in great kindness, you come to us. You arrest us with mercy and kindness and goodness, and you call us to look upon you. You call us to believe in you. You bless us, Lord, in order to transform us. And as we think about the life of Jacob, may we, may we be reminded of our own sinful disposition before you. 
May we be reminded of your holiness and our need of repentance, our need of submission. Father, I pray for those in the room that may be like Jacob and they may be on the run. They may be running from you, running from home, running from your goodness and your blessing. And I pray, Lord, that as we, as you preach your message, as your word comes alive, as it is proclaimed and preached, that you would, by the power of your spirit, that you would draw running sinners back to yourself. That you would, run, that you would meet prodigal sons in the pigsty and on the back porch and call them to yourself. In your great name, I pray this. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. I want us to focus in on um, this part of the book, uh, uh, on the story of Jacob. I want us to focus in on repentance. And so I'm going to define repentance in the beginning, and then we'll get down to the text. But a, a couple of things that are instrumental in us understanding repentance, and we're going to kind of put some definitions up on the screen. And if you like to take notes, and I like for you to take notes, and if you want to take notes, it's probably going to come up too fast for you to write down. And so maybe you want to get your phone out and take a few pictures of the screen as it's a uh, coming uh, as, it, as it comes out, but let's define repentance. And first of all, let's say this about repentance, or let me say, you're not gonna say anything, you're gonna listen. I'm gonna say this, that repentance is the right response to the revelation of God. When God reveals himself for who he is, right? And when God reveals his standard of holiness, his righteousness for who he is, when he reveals who we are, he is the creator, we are the creation, how do we rightly respond to that? Well, that's the word repentance. That's what we do. We repent. J.I. Packer said it like this. He says, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge, as our knowledge grows at these three points, the point of sin and the point of self and the point of God, as your knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance, it has to be enlarged. Repentance is based upon revelation, revelation of yourself, revelation of your sin, revelation of sin, what sin even is, and revelation of God. And that's the work of the Bible. God is revealing that, not through our feelings. Well, I feel like this is bad. I feel like this is good. This is how I feel about it. But it's, a, it's not something that is subjective. Rather, it is something that is objective, that he's given to us, declared in his word. His word is describing to us what sin is. It's describing to us, telling us who God is. It's even showing us who you are. As I even said last week, you're Jacob. That's who you are. You're Jacob in this story. You're the deceiver. You're the cheat. You're the sinner. And what repentance is, is repentance is a change of direction. That's what the very word of repentance means. It means a change of direction. So just like you have here in the life of Jacob, Jacob is running from Jacob is running from uh, his home. He's running from Haran. He's headed towards Padam Aran is where he's running, up into the north. So he's leaving out of Israel, out of the promised land. He's running up into like modern day Iraq is where he's going. It's like some 500 miles. And what true repentance would look like is Jacob stopping in his tracks, turning around and going back home. That's what repentance would look like. Repentance is a change in direction. 
It's a change of heart, a change of attitude, a change of behavior. That is what repentance is. And repentance, oftentimes within church circles, we think of repentance as something you do one time. I repented of my sin and I turned to Jesus and I was baptized, but that is a false understanding of repentance. As even Martin Luther said, he said this, whenever Martin Luther had went at odds and went at war at the Catholic church, the foundation of that was in the understanding of repentance. Martin Luther will go to a church in Germany and he will nail 95 theses onto a door of this church in Wittenberg. And the first of the theses has to deal with the idea and the concept of repentance. And what Luther says this is when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, it's what Jesus came. Jesus's first sermon was this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus said, repent, he intended that the entire life of the believer should be that of repentance. Repentance is a change in direction. It's a change in attitude. It's submission. That's what repentance is. It's when you understand that you are outmatched and you are outweighed by the very God of the universe, that you are not him, but he is him and he has made you. That is what repentance is. It is submission before the Lord. It is bowing down. It is tapping out. Like I grew up watching wrestling and I watched wrestling when wrestling was good, when the good guys were heroes and the bad guys were villains and the women were clothes. That's when I watched wrestling. Before the days of pyrotechnics, when it was just guys in the rings going at it. Guys like Randy Macho Man Savage and Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and the Legion of Doom and I can go on, but those were the good days and every wrestler had his submission hold. Ric Flair was a figure four leg lock. The, the Iron Sheik, it was the, the camel clutch and each one of them had their submission hold. And it's when you realize that God has you in a submission hold that you tap out. That's what you do when you realize that you're outpowered and that's God. God oftentimes lovingly comes to us and puts us in a submission hold so that you and I would tap out. That is repentance. It is us tapping out, us saying no longer is my life gonna be governed by me. No longer am I gonna live my life my way. I'm not gonna do it my way. I'm gonna do it your way because your way is better. And ultimately you are the creator and I am the creation. And what we have in this text is what repentance is not. God reveals himself, but Jacob doesn't repent. And so let's spend a little bit of time in the text. So keep your Bible out open. Let me just give a little bit of the backstory. The backstory is this, that with, uh, with his mommy's help, Jacob has stolen his brother Esau's birthright. That's what he's done. Jacob has just deceived and cheated. That's what his name means. He's deceived and he's cheated his brother Esau out of their father's blessing. And now this is important. This is the end of life blessing. And a father's final blessing was important in biblical times. It was a practical matter of inheritance and rights. In addition, it was the final blessing included a prophetic statements that revealed God's supernatural power at work through the men of his choosing. So it's not like Isaac could just say, oops, my bad. I didn't mean to give it to Jacob. I meant to give it to Esau. You know, you can't um, triple stamp a double stamp, right? Just like in Dumb and Dumber or something along those lines. It's, it doesn't work that way. It's not like I X out, no, I meant it over here. Jacob has stolen this. He's stolen an inheritance. Now, let me, there's tons to unpack here, but let me just say this, that Isaac was, or Esau was never to receive the, the final blessing. 
that Isaac wanted to give it to Esau because he preferred Esau and Esau had rights to it because he was the firstborn. But God had already said prophetically to, to uh, Rebekah that no, it's to go to Jacob. And so nevertheless though, Jacob has stolen the blessing. And Esau comes in and finds out that Jacob has stolen the blessing and Esau is outraged. And Esau says, he makes a vow, Jacob, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. And now just so you remember, Esau is the older brother. Esau's name means red. Um, Esau is hairy. He's an outdoorsman. Esau is a, Esau is a hunter. He kills game and fixes game. Um, he spends most of his time outside. Esau uh, probably drove an F-250. Jacob, on the other hand, Jacob is a mama's boy. Jacob uh, makes lentil stew. Uh, Jacob probably um, used a loofah and moisturized, right? Jacob probably drove a Mini Cooper. And if you drive a Mini Cooper, that's fine. Um, I'm just saying, it's not very masculine. I didn't see any out there. That's why I picked it. And when Esau, the hunter, comes in and vows that he's going to kill Jacob, Jacob plays the role of any little brother, and this is what Jacob does. He runs. And as a little brother, I understand that. Like some of you have never met my, my older brother. He's a big man. And I used to do the same thing. I would hit him and run because he couldn't catch me. And so Jacob does the same thing. He steals from his brother, and now he's on the run. Rebecca tells Jacob to run, to go to Padan Aram, to go hide with Uncle Laban. And that's going to whole host of trouble. But here's what we have in Genesis 28. Jacob is all by himself. He's scared. He's running for his life. He's a few days in in what's going to be a 500 mile journey. He's a couple days into that journey and he lays down and look at what it says in verse 11. And he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he laid down in that place. Now, listen, I've stayed in some, what, some rough places. I've stayed in some shady hotels. I've camped out in some primitive type campsites as I even look at Billy. Billy, have you ever had to use a, a rock as a pillow? Probably not very much. And that's where Jacob is. Jacob is so destitute at where he's standing that Jacob uses a rock as his pillow. And this is to indicate the loneliness and the desperation of Jacob's situation. In fact, when the author, when Moses writes this and tells the story, he says that the sun is setting. And that could, I mean, it means physically the sun is setting, but it's also probably a literary device that's being used here. That's what commentators tell me anyway. There's a literary device saying that Jacob probably feels like the, the sun is setting on his own life. And here's the truth that we can learn from this, that God sovereignly uses times of weakness and brokenness and fear, and disappointment, and desperation to bring us to repentance. And that is where Jacob is. Jacob is in one of those times. As one author has said that God's office is at the end of our rope. And even in this story, you would think that possibly, just possibly, maybe Jacob's at the end of his rope, but he's not yet there. That God has just given, or Jacob has just wrestled something that Jacob has idolized probably for years, the blessing of his father. Like as we looked last week, we saw that um, Jacob and, uh, and Rebecca played, I mean, Isaac and Rebecca played favorites. And what we saw last week was that Jacob is Rebecca's favorite, but 
uh, Esau is Isaac's favorite. And now what we have is that he just received his father's blessing. And now that he has it, it will cost him any, everything. In fact, we know that he's idolized this because oftentimes an idol is something that we cannot live without. We must have it. Therefore, it drives us to break rules we once honored, to harm others, even ourselves, in order to get it. That is from Tim Keller. That an idol drives us to do things that we normally wouldn't do. An idol is an inordinate desire. And Jacob has this inordinate desire that Jacob is a man prone to idolatry. And what God is doing, what God has done in Jacob's life is God has withheld something that Jacob idolized in order to intensify the desire. And now what God has done is God has given Jacob the thing that he's idolized and he's allowed Jacob to feel all of the emptiness and all of the brokenness that comes with an idol. And that's called love. That's called compassion that God would do that, that we would idolize and worship something other than God. Something, again, an idol in worship is something we do in our heart. This isn't something that Jacob went and bowed down and prayed to, but it is an inordinate desire. Jacob says, it's necessary in my life to live a fulfilled, satisfied, contented life. What I need is I need my father, my daddy, to say you're a good boy and to give me the blessing. And now he's got the blessing, but it's left him just empty and feeling even more desperate. And that's where Jacob is. Jacob will do this again. He will swap out idols. And if you don't properly repent, that's what will happen to us as well. And this is where our story intersects uh, with Jacob's story as well. That as John Calvin has rightly said, that our hearts, every fallen human being, our hearts are an idol-making factory and they just crank out one idol after another idol after another idol. And again, what's an idol? Well, an idol is an inordinate desire oftentimes. It's something you long for. It's something you say that, that you're willing to sin in order to get or to keep. It's something you say, my, my, my life cannot be contented without this. My life cannot be satisfied without this. My life has no meaning apart from this. And that's what Jacob is feeling. And now he has it, but yet he doesn't feel contentment. He doesn't feel satisfaction. In fact, he's sleeping on a rock and he's running and he still feels broken and he still feels afraid. But Jacob will swap out this idol, the idol of his father's blessing for another idol, an idol of a woman. And you can imagine how that goes for Jacob, the idol of a woman that he loves. And Jacob is in this place, a place of fear and a place of running and it's in that place that God shows up and God reveals himself to Jacob through this vision. The vision begins in verse number 12. And what Jacob sees is Jacob sees three things. Verse number 12, and he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. So Jacob sees three things. The first thing he sees is a ladder. Now, it's not a ladder like an old rickety ladder that you and I got, you know, propped up in the garage. It's not, a, it's not a ladder like that. It's not even a nice aluminum extension ladder. In fact, the word used here in the Hebrew probably isn't even the word ladder, but it's probably better understood as a, a staircase or a ramp. That what Jacob saw was something big, really big. It's a tower with a spiral staircase around it, maybe even. This thing would have been huge. It touched, it bridged, if you will. It bridged heaven and earth. And then on the ladder, on the staircase, on the ramp, there is ascending and descending from it, angels. Now, when you think of angels, you gotta throw out the notion of 
fat babies with harps and wings. That's not what an angel is. You gotta throw out the notion of even Clarence from a, it's a wonderful life. This isn't about bells ringing and angels getting their wings. That's not what he sees. That in fact, whenever every place, except for the book of Hebrews, when it describes an angel, the first words out of an angel's mouth is fear not. Why do you think an angel needs to say to the people that see an angel, fear not? Because there's something frightening anytime an angel shows up. And so Jacob doesn't just see an angel, but he sees a multitude of angels ascending and descending. So no doubt, this is an awesome sight as Jacob even describes. And what's happening here is angels are messengers of God declaring and heralding the message of God. They're pointing to the work and the power of God. That's what happens whenever you see an angel in the Bible. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a road sign pointing to the power of God, the majesty of God. And what this is saying is, is that God's declaring that his royal power is on the move. That's what it meant for Jacob. The third thing, if that's not enough to invoke fear, notice the third thing that Jacob sees. He sees a vision of the Lord, a vision of God standing above him, standing maybe possibly even means beside him. It's all encompassing. God is everywhere. That's what he's saying. God is all over this place. And then the Lord speaks Seeing him isn't enough. God speaks. He's the God of language. He's the God that speaks to us. And the Lord speaks to Jacob and he gives Jacob four promises. The first three promises that he gives to Jacob are promises in line with the Abrahamic covenant. He's reiterating or placing a new covenant in Jacob's life. The same covenant he gave to Jacob's grandfather and to Jacob's father. The covenant looks like this. He says, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. I always want to say dust of the wind when I read that. I get too much Kansas on my mind, but dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, this should sound familiar for those of us that have been here since the beginning of January. This is the kingdom of God. What God is saying to Jacob is, I'm going to establish my kingdom through you. The kingdom of God is people and a place and blessings, and rules. And so we have the first three here. We have the promise of land. We have the problem of offspring, children. They're gonna be like dust on the earth. You're gonna spread out to the north, south, east, west. There's gonna be a people. There's gonna be a nation. And there's gonna be blessing. God's blessing, he's saying, it's coming to you, Jacob, to your people, but it's not gonna stop with you. It's to go through you and touch all of the families of the earth are gonna be blessed through what I'm going to do through you. And this ultimately is a reminder that God's promises are not contingent upon man. It's again what we said last week, that God picks what man normally wouldn't pick. Isaac picked Esau and God said, no, it's Jacob. Jacob's gonna do the same thing whenever it comes time to pick a wife. He's gonna pick Rachel, but God's gonna say, no, it's Leah. I'm gonna work through Leah. We see this over and over and over again. We even get fast forward to the life of Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, the savior that no one would pick. He's the king that no one would bow down to. They're gonna say, is anything good come from Nazareth? Who is this man? And they're gonna crucify him, claiming to be a fool, say he's blaspheming God. And in fact, he is the very God. He's gonna do it again whenever he puts Jesus on a cross. Who would, who would, get, who would get triumph over their enemies by dying? Only God will do this. God's promises are not contingent upon man. It's God who accomplishes what he has promised. He's promised a people. He's promised a nation. He's promised land. He's promised a king. He's promised all these promises and God is bringing them about. 
The fourth promise that he gives is he gives the promise of his presence. Verse 15, behold, Jacob, I am with you and I'm gonna keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob is utterly friendless and alone. His sin has isolated him and alienated him from everyone and now God is going to be with him. Not only will God be with him, but look, he's going to protect him. Jacob, I'm gonna watch over you. Jacob's on the run, he's defenseless and God is going to watch over him and protect him. Number three, he's going to bless Jacob. Jacob is literally, he's utterly probably penniless in this moment. And yet he says, God, I'm going to bless your socks off Jacob in order that you're gonna be so blessed that all of the families of the earth are gonna be blessed through you. And then look at verse number 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Jacob's filled with a sense of awe and adoration. And this is the correct emotion. That when God makes a revelation, when we rightly see God, not, not just not physically, but when we rightly come to an understanding of who God is, it should fill our hearts with adoration. We should stand in awe. Even says Jacob was afraid. Fear, holy reverence fills Jacob's heart in this moment. And then look at verse number 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had, had, that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name, that, that, he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Lutz at first. Jacob makes a memorial and he dedicates it. He anoints it. He sets it apart by pouring oil on this rock. And then verse number 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God, will be, if God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now on the surface, when we first read this, this appears to be a good thing that Jacob is saying. That when we first read this or hear this or look over this, you may even say, hey, this sounds good. This sounds like repentance. This, Jacob's making a vow. But listen to me, true and genuine repentance is unconditional surrender, not conditional compromise. Genuine repentance is submission and tapping out. Genuine repentance is unconditional surrender, not conditional compromise. Repentance is a confession of our sins and our shortcomings in response to the greatness of God. Here, Jacob is compromising. He's offering God a plea deal, conditional statements. If you, God, do this for me, then I will do this. If you will be my God, if you will bless me, if you will protect me, don't let anything bad happen to me here, God. If you will provide for me, then shall, I, then shall you be my God. Then shall I worship you. Notice how Jacob says he's gonna worship him by giving the tithe, by giving the tenth. It's only when you bless me enough, God, will I then obediently give to you what's rightfully yours. It's only when you, when you bless me and protect me and give me material things. It's only in that that I will truly repent, that I will truly turn, that I will truly worship. And that's not humility. In the words of Maxwell Smart, he missed it by that much. 
And so let's look at and dissect. We could have five, but we will reduce it down to two. But there are two ways that Jacob misses repentance in this. The first is this. Jacob emphasizes the place over the person. Notice after the vision of the ladder, Jacob is fixed on the place. Surely the Lord, is what he says, is in this place. How awesome is this place, not God. The house of God and the gate of heaven and Jacob builds a memorial, a place to return to time and time again in order to remember this experience that Jacob had with the Lord. The same Lord that has just promised, I'm gonna go with you, Jacob. Wherever you go, I'm gonna go. But Jacob's more focused on the place, this set place becomes the focus and not the Lord of the place that's going with Jacob. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with remembering places places where the Lord might have met you or blessed you or did something in your heart, something in your life. You may always have fond memories of that place, but the focus is never on a place. The focus is always on the person. On September the 1st, 2002, my life forever changed whenever my wife gave birth to our firstborn daughter, Kennedy Grace. What an awesome day that day was. But listen, it wasn't the hospital that made that day so special. It was my little girl, Kennedy, that made that place, that made that day so special. It's the birth of my daughter. That's better than the place. The place was just the instrument the person, Kennedy, that we got to bring home and we got to watch grow up and blossom into the young woman that she is now, that has been the joy. That is what has been made it so awesome. Not just the day, but for the rest of my life has been exciting and joyous as I watched her grow. And the same thing is true about even a church. The church is the hospital. It's the instrument. It's just the instrument. It's the hospital. It's where sick sinners come. It's where people are born again in a place, but the, but the focus is on the person. It's on the person of Christ. And I've seen it as a pastor. I've seen people over and over again emphasize a place or a people or a pastor over the person of Jesus. The churches are gatherings of people. Pastors can become the focus over Jesus. Churches can become, the people that are in there can become the focus over Jesus. And all of those things except Jesus can fail you. What is the church? The church is a collection of sinners saved by grace. What are your pastors? Well, we're trophies of God's grace, which is a nice way to say that we're really a bunch of complete idiots that God has saved anyway. That's what we are. That we will fail one another. Now, I understand that what God is doing in our midst is something special and good and godly. And we praise God for that, that we're not a contentious people. We're people that genuinely love one another, that we genuinely try to serve one another. But listen to me, it would be easy for us as fallible sinners to get caught up and tangled up and bicker and fight at some point. We may have some divide at some point. I'm going to fail you. Probably not Pastor Brian, but I am going to fail you. You're going to need me and I'm not going to be available. You're going to want me to listen, but my ADD is going to come in. I'm going to walk out of the room while you're talking to me. And you're going to be like, he doesn't even care about me. I am going to fail you. And if our eyes are fixated on a place 
or a people or your pastors or something else, when it crumbles and fails, right? It leaves you spiraling and wondering and all of these things. Focus on Jesus. We named the Point Community Church so that when people said, what's the point? We could say, Jesus, Jesus is the point. Now, 14 some years, don't lose focus on that. Jesus is the point. People come, people go, people fail. Pastors, gosh, it's not my plan. My plan's to preach my own funeral, climb in the casket, peace out, shut the lid and go be with Jesus. I just wanna preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. That's what I want to do, but it is quite possible that I may fail you in the future, may have already failed you in the past. Your other pastors may fail you. Your community group may fail you, but Jesus will never fail you. And when they do fail you, if the focus is on Jesus and you see us for who we are, sinners saved by grace. Oh gosh, there's a lot of grace being able to be given when you think about your own sin, think about your own need of grace. When you look around, you go, golly, I go to church with a bunch of complete idiots, but good grief, God has saved them, right? And he's working in them. God can use these bunch of people. Like he can use anybody. Yes, that's the goal. The goal is always. And what happens here with Jacob is Jacob focuses in on this place horizontally, if you will, rather than vertically worrying about the Lord. I'm gonna build this and have this. And this is gonna be this little memorial that's gonna stay here, this little place that we'll have God. And I'm gonna leave. Wait, 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 God has just said, no, wherever you go, I'm never gonna leave you or forsake you. I'm gonna be with you. But I'd rather you stay here. No, 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 no. Like within the New Testament church, there's only one memorial that's given to the New Testament church. There's really only one piece of furniture that we need in here. It's not a cross, right? The only piece of furniture that we need is some kind of table to put the Lord's Supper on. The memorial that the Lord has given to his church is a memorial meal, his body and his blood. And it's something that we eat and take with us and leave. So it's not something we come back to, but it's something that's memorialized in the remembering. And it goes wherever we go, wherever you can find bread and a little bit of juice, you can, you can have a memorial meal and remember Jesus. That's the only memorial. It doesn't set up places and buildings and all of these other you know, shrines are all set up. I've been to the Holy Land and every street you go down, there's some memorial set up. And that's not necessarily the command of the Lord. That's the command of tourism. The command of the Lord is one memorial, but yet Jacob wants to go back to this place because he's emphasizing a place. The next thing is Jacob emphasizes the material over the spiritual. What Jacob wants God to give him is material blessings. If I could see the evidence of your blessings in my life through protection, nothing bad happening, through provision, plenty of food to eat, through what I wear, through the gift of land, through the, then he says, then the Lord shall be my God that Jacob's worship is contingent upon the material blessings of the Lord. That Jacob's the first prosperity gospel believer or preacher. I didn't even think T.D. Jakes or Joyce Meyer was around then, but the, their message was around then. And it's in Jacob's heart that God, if you bless me and you give to me, if you take care of me, if you bless me physically, materially, then I will worship you. And the truth is, the truth is, is what God promises is God promises his presence. God has not promised us 
physical, material blessings, but what God has promised us is spiritual and what God has promised us is better. God's presence is always better than anything else that we can have because God promises his presence. Jesus promises that, lo, I am with you wherever you may go, that even when you have nothing, even when your health is failing, your friends have left, even when you've sinned and you run, what he is saying here to Jacob is, I am here. And proper worship of the Lord isn't contingent upon the Lord's blessings, but on his presence and a revelation of himself, that God is enough, that that's the outcry. That's the heart cry of every true worshiper is, God, you are enough. We just sang it in the song, it is well with my soul. That's what that song means. What is well? What makes it well? It doesn't matter my st uh, station in life. It doesn't matter what may be happening on the outside, that what you have done on the inside, the fact that you have saved me and forgiven me and promised me heaven, that that makes everything in life well with my soul. And in fact, how well you understand the gospel can be demonstrated by your ability to rejoice in all circumstances. Again, what idolatry does, it says, unless I have this, I cannot have satisfaction and contentment. It will not be well with my soul. But what the gospel brings is a better news and a better message. And it says, no matter what happens in your life, because of God's presence, because of his forgiveness, because of our relationship, you can know satisfaction and contentment and you can even rejoice in all circumstances. That Jacob misses true repentance. That God is true to his promise and he will bring his promises to pass through Jacob. That Jacob hasn't spiraled down far enough. That tough shell of, of Jacob's pride, it isn't broken enough. It isn't, the egg hasn't been cracked enough for Jacob to repent. And God will appear to Jacob again in a, in a couple of chapters over from Genesis 28, God will appear to Jacob again. And this time God will come and he will wrestle with Jacob. But listen, even though it's just a few chapters in between, it's 20 hard years of Jacob's life. Jacob's idolatry and Jacob's running will send him to Padan Aram, where his uncle Laban will take advantage of him and he will marry the wrong woman and he will give ultimately 20 years of hard work to his uncle Laban, still trying to find contentment. And then the Lord will appear again and he will wrestle with Jacob. That's another famous story that maybe you know about Jacob. He wrestles with him. And as God wrestles with Jacob, God reaches down and he wounds Jacob. He touches Jacob's hip and makes it out of joint. And for the rest of Jacob's life, he will walk with a limp from the wounding that he's received from the Lord. It's there in that wrestling match that I believe that Jacob finally repents. He finally surrenders to the Lord. After the Lord has wounded him, then the Lord will ask Jacob, Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob will confess, my name is Jacob. But what he's saying there again, he's not just saying Jacob. My name is deceiver. My name is liar. My name is cheat. And the Lord gives Jacob a new name, the name of Israel. Know your new name. This is your name. And Israel means he wrestles or he strives with God and he gives him a, a new identity. And that's the story, that's not the end of the story of Jacob, but that's an important part in the story of Jacob. That God lets him spiral down. He lets him spend 20 years in hard labor in order to bring him to a place of repentance. And then 
I know that Dee brought this out. I think she brought this out in her class. She's the one that showed it to me, and it's fantastic, fantastic. Do you know who the first person is in the entire Bible to, re- to refer to God as a shepherd, the shepherd of our souls? It's Jacob. At the end of Jacob's life in Genesis 48, 15, when Jacob is blessing his 12 boys, when he gets to Joseph, Jacob says this, he, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been, look at what he says, has been my shepherd all of my life, all of my life long to this day. That as Jacob looked at his life and is reflected back in every situation, in every station, Jacob saw that it was the Lord who was shepherding him. The Lord was shepherding the Jacob, the liar and the deceit and the cheat out of Israel. That he was trying to bring about worship and repentance and submission and a change of heart and a change of attitude and a change of behavior, which is what true, genuine worship is. And maybe you're there. Maybe you're on the run. Maybe you're running from the Lord. Maybe you're like the prodigal son or actually the prodigal sons. Maybe you're running through riotous living and partying and living a double life. Maybe you're running to your idol time and time again, running to that thing, that that addiction, that internet site, that whatever it may be, that person, that all they do is they leave you broken and empty. Maybe you're on the run through religion, trying to pad your morality, pad your resume before God so that you would be accepted so that he would receive you. And that's the opposite of what the gospel declares. That what the gospel declares is that he has come for sinners. That he runs after those who run from him. And in fact, when Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus will use this, the very story in Genesis 28, he will use to describe his incarnation. One of his disciples named, uh, who will be one of his disciples named Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's reading his Bible under a tree and then he shows up and they tell Nathaniel, say, we found the one, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel's response to that is, what? This guy from Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, you know, be like, well, you know, can anything good come from whatever place that we could think of as being lowly? Can anything good come from that? And then Jesus will say to him, he will use this story to describe his incarnation. He'll say this very thing. He'll say, truly, truly, I say to you, Nathaniel, You will see heaven opened up and the angels of God descending, ascending and descending. But this time he says, on the son of man, who that is Jesus. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself. What Jesus is teaching is that Jesus is the gate of heaven. Jesus is the one who descends from heaven. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God coming to us. The meaning of all of this, the meaning of Jacob's ladder, the meaning of it all is this, that God descends down to man that in all other faiths and all other religions, all of them, you have God at the top of the ladder and you gotta climb these steps of virtue. You gotta climb these steps of morality. You gotta climb these religious steps in order to get closer and closer to him. If you're moral, hardworking, make the right sacrifices, be generous to the poor, know your Bible. If you do all of these things well enough, then God will bless you. Then God will forgive you. Then God will receive you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is something completely different, something completely otherly. 
Jacob's ladder means this, that God comes down by his sheer grace. He gives the blessing of his presence to unimportant, undeserving, broken, and bad people. That God comes to us and calls us to repent and calls us to worship and calls us to love and calls us to give and calls us to follow. That God lovingly shepherds. He lovingly shepherds deceivers and cheats and idolaters and sinners like us. He shepherds the deceiver, the cheat, the idolater out of his people by time and time again, giving us something better. Giving us something better than the thing that we're deceiving to get. Giving us something better, the thing that we're willing to cheat to have. Giving us something better than the idol that is out there. And that thing that he gives us is himself. The promise of his presence. That I will be with you and I will be for you. And I will forgive you. And I will set my love and my affection upon you. As we come to the Lord's table, let me ask you, where may you need to repent? Where may you need to have a change of heart or a change of attitude or a change of behavior in order to live a life that's congruent with the declaration and the revelation that God has given you in his word? Where are you running? And why are you running? Quit running. Some of you in the room, listen, let me, let me help you a ton. Your life would become so much easier if you quit running. That one of the Puritan writers called God the hound of heaven. He hunts you down. He comes after you. He withholds satisfaction and contentment. He allows you to feel brokenness. He allows you to taste the sand in your mouth that comes from idolatry. He withholds that living water from you so that you will hunger and thirst for him and for righteousness. Quit running and repent. Turn, believe, unconditionally, unconditionally. Don't hold anything over on God, you can't. Unconditional repentance. Where is the Lord wrestling with you? What's the object of your worship? What's the object of your worship? If you're here this morning and you've yet to receive Jesus as Savior, unconditionally, to throw yourself upon the mercy and the grace of God. That's what Christianity is about. It's about the revelation of Jesus. Jesus has opened up the way, the gate. He's beckoning you to come and to believe in him. Sinners in the room, if you've yet to receive Christ, please don't turn away today. Please don't continue to run. Please don't spend another 20 years in hard labor running from the Lord, but repent, turn, bend, submit even today. Say, Lord, I'm willing to follow. Lord, I'll do anything to have you. Forgive me. Forgive me. And you could do that today. Just like in the Bible, it says, today is the day of salvation. Guess what? That's today. What's the day of salvation? It's today. It's every day that you get up, God's mercies are new. It's the day of salvation and you can repent today. You can do it today. You can believe today. And those in the room who are still struggling with sin, sin like me, what a good message for us, is it not? That you be transformed by the grace of God the God who comes and allows his body to be broken, his blood to be shed for sinners such as us so that we can know him and have a right relationship with him. Praise be unto his name. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. We ask the rhetorical question in that song, are you worthy of this? The true question is why would you want this when we think about our own lives? And yet you love us with a 
deep and forever love. Praise be unto your name. Praise be unto your name, Lord. You're worthy of it all. You're worthy of all of our lives, of all that we have, that all that we make, of everything. You're worthy of it all. And we offer it all up unto you as sweet-smelling sacrifice to you, Jesus. We thank you as we come to a time of remembering you, Jesus. We thank you that you didn't stay in heaven and say, hey, climb the ladder, but you came down. Thank you for coming down. In your name we pray, amen.